Well, before we get into our final sermon in our series through the Psalms, I, I want to celebrate what we've accomplished this summer as we've exposed ourselves to the Psalms and its lessons and teaching for us. We have not only moved through different types of Psalms, but we've also sung the Psalms. We've learned to sing the Psalms and uh, so much of our service, our call to worship and our confession and even just worship expressions have been informed. My hope is that it, it'll transform us as a church that our, the life of our worship will include more than it has before. The life of your worship, hopefully, um, includes the Psalms in a way that had not previously uh, had a role in your life. We are, we are starting a new sermon series in Proverbs, 12 sermons through the book of Proverbs starting next week that'll go up to Advent, and our connect groups will uh, complement that. So we'll be going through a Proverbs study guide put out by Crossway and edited by J.I. Packer, and they're not going to exactly mirror each sermon, but there'll be really, really great lessons, 12 lessons, 12 sermons uh, in the fall through the book of Proverbs, and we've entitled it Wisdom for Godly Living. Lessons from the Proverbs. And this is the practical aspect. Uh, this is probably uh, the most practical part of the Bible where um, the Bible does not function like a book of advice for living, but there's a lot of it in there. But the Proverbs uniquely and specifically basically tell us here's how to live wise, godly lives. And so we'll have 12 sermons through the Proverbs. And we're excited about that. Uh, our last sermon today is from Psalm 110, so let's read the Word of God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Father, now we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and open our eyes that we may have the same vision that the writer of Psalms had, that David had. Father, uh, transform our hearts through the preached and taught word and convict us and convince us of his truth and power that we may leave this place differently than the way we came in. We pray these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, when it comes to opinions about Jesus, the world has never had any uh, shortage or any lacked any variety of suggestions about who Jesus is. There have been people who had, have had a very negative view of Jesus. The leaders of his own day said that what Jesus did, he did by the power of the devil, that he did through the power of hell. But for the most part, humanity has been somewhat condescending to Jesus, 
somewhat generous, somewhat patronizing, somewhat complimentary. A few hundred years after the church was founded, there was a a person who came into power of the Roman Empire, a man named Julian the Apostate, who ruled from 361 to 363, and Julian was known as the ancient adversary of Christianity. And he wrote this, quote, Jesus has now been celebrated about 300 years, having done nothing in his lifetime worthy of fame, unless, of course, anyone thinks it's a very great work to heal lame and blind people and exercise demoniacs in the villages of Bethsaida and Bethany, end quote. Some of the great philosophers of the world have looked at Jesus as the best man. Rousseau, for example, wrote, when Plato describes his image, his imaginary righteous man loaded with all the punishments of guilt, yet meriting the highest rewards of virtue, he describes exactly the character of Jesus Christ, end quote. Ralph Waldo Emerson, himself not a believer, said, Jesus is the most perfect of all the men that have yet appeared on the earth. Diderot said he was the unsurpassed. Even Napoleon called him the emperor of love. And John Stuart Mill, the philosopher, said he is the guide of humanity. The scientist Leckie said he's the highest pattern of virtue. Renan, the French atheist, said he is the greatest among the sons of men. And so it has been that in, even in the mouths of those who don't believe in him, there is a kind of condescending patronization that he's the best of men. But the other side of that is a very incipient denial that he's anything more than a man. One of the most surprising details of history is that the Jews themselves never un understood the Messiah in terms of deity. He was to be an anointed military ruler of Israel, but not divine. The idea that a man could or would receive reverence and honor on behalf of God, yes. Worship on behalf of God, maybe. But to be worshiped as God himself, never. Now in Matthew twenty-two forty-one, 41, Jesus gets into an exchange with the Pharisees where he quotes this psalm, Psalm 110, Matthew twenty-two forty-one. Jesus asked the Pharisees a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord, in Hebrew is literally Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adoni, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. What do you think about Christ? That was the question. And it's still the question today. What do you think about Christ? See, the way one answers that question reveals whether you will live forever in the presence of God or whether you will live in eternal darkness 
alienated from the presence of God. Now, Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted psalms in all of the New Testament because it answers this question, who is Christ? And the answer starts with a look at the king at God's right hand. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Another way to translate this passage is the oracle of the Lord to my Lord, or the oracle of Yahweh to Adonai. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Commentators have observed that that these were words that were likely used as um, during the enthronement ceremony of an ancient Israelite king. The concept of a monarch sitting at the right hand of deity was common throughout the ancient Near East. The right hand was viewed as a place of privilege and distinction. In Psalm 110, it also comes with the promise of the defeat of enemies. And so far, we don't have anything spectacular. This is the kind of enthronement ceremonial speech that you would find typically in an ancient Israelite king, and for that matter, many other ancient Near Eastern um, rulers. Now, who are the enemies being talked about here? They're kings and the nations. According to David, who writes Psalm 110, the kings and the nations who serve other gods, whose loyalty is to other gods, whose institutions and governments don't bow to the worldwide dominion of the Lord. And on the day of judgment, they'll be judged and defeated. But there's something important here, and this is true for us as well. Judgment can be averted, averted if the nations bow before this king whom Yahweh has seated at his right hand. And so in this sense, there's really nothing anomalous going on here in this passage. All throughout Scripture, there are people who God has invested with a delegation of his power and authority to mediate between himself and humanity. Now, why doesn't God do the mediating himself? Well, God is a spirit, and God chooses human beings to mediate, representatives, so to speak, as go-betweens between himself and the rest of humanity. Adam was just such a person, Noah was just such a person, and Abraham was just such a person. But here in this image of Psalm 110 is the ultimate mediator who is invested with a special delegation, a surprising delegation of God's power. So much so that his power is God's power His authority is God's authority. And there's a simple application here. Bow down before this king and you won't be crushed on the day of his wrath. That was the message that went out from uh, the kings as they were appointed by God. That was the idea that the kings of Israel were appointed by God. And the other pagan nations had the same idea that they ruled and they reigned on authority from the gods themselves. 
And if you oppose the king, you oppose the god they worshipped. And so there is a similarity here with the cultures of the ancient Near East. Oppose this king and it's lights out for you. If you've ever seen that movie with Gerald Butler, The 300, where every one of them have you know, airbrushed abs, there's a scene when an emissary from the king of Persia, Xerxes, rides into Sparta, and hanging from his horse are half a dozen skulls of kings who, who resisted the power of Xerxes. And it's meant to intimidate Leonidas, the king of Sparta. And so the idea, it's a common idea, that if you oppose this king, you'll be crushed because this, in this particular king is invested all cosmic power and all the power of the heavens. And so there's some carryover here. It's an idea that would have been familiar. And he uses a lot of poetic language, the idea that he'll fill the earth with corpses. Now, I don't think for a minute that the vision from Psalm of the Messiah is one of an absolute bloodthirsty ruler who's going to fill the earth with bodies, but it's poetic language. It's the kind of language from the ancient world that sort of, in a flowery way, it doesn't sound very flowery for us today, but in the ancient world, it was just a given that kings had enemies. In fact, you weren't much of a king if you didn't have enemies because it probably meant you bowed down to everyone. And so the idea that a king not only had enemies but that a king would crush his enemies was a, was a very poetic and beautiful way of saying that this king is invested with incredible power. And it's a cause for rejoicing because the Psalms are poetry, they're poems, they're hymns. And so this is ancient flowery language to say that this is a powerful king. He's invested with all the power of heaven. And if you oppose him on the day of his rule and reign, you'll be crushed. Now we move on to verse three. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And the meaning of verse three is debated by scholars such to the point where most believe that this, at least the second half of the verse is, is beyond interpretation. The first half seems clear. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. There's a celebration of the people of God when the king comes to reign and in holy ritual garments they celebrate and offer themselves as available to his service in the service of the king. The second part of the verse, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours, just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense in Hebrew or English. I mean, after all, what does the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth, what does that mean? Well, some educated speculation is that it could be an allusion to the fact that in the same way the ground is refreshed in the morning by the dew, the king at God's right hand is refreshed at the multitude who gather in holy garments to celebrate his enthronement. It's a common image from the ancient world that points toward the day when the righteous, according to Revelation 6, 
put on white robes before the throne of God to worship him in heaven. Now, before we go any further, it's important to note that whenever you attempt to interpret the theology of the Old Testament, that Jesus gets the right of way. How many of you know that that in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles take certain Old Testament passages and add their interpretation? And often, if you were a first century Jew who was not a follower of Jesus, you would have heard Jesus' words, the way he dealt with an Old Testament passage, or the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter, and you would have thought, that is a horrible mangling of that story. But the truth is, is that if Jesus interprets an Old Testament text, his theology is right. And we yield the right of way to Jesus when he deals with an Old Testament passage, okay? So if you're reading Old Testament passage and you, you want to get a better handle of it, look in the New Testament and see if the New Testament deals with it, theologically at least. In fact, it's, it's noteworthy to say that the New Testament is really the first Old Testament theology. The New Testament really, in many ways, is a commentary on the Old Testament. So Jesus' interpretation of any passage in the Old Testament, if he deals with it, is the right one, and his interpretation of this one, he deals with it in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, and Jesus says that this verse refers to him. It's referring to him. The Pharisees thought that Jesus would be special because he was a descendant of David. That's what, not Jesus, the Messiah. That's what make, would make the Messiah special. Well, he'll be a descendant of David and his royal lineage will make him special. Because David was the beloved monarch. David was the archetype of a righteous king. And so any king or Messiah that was to reign in the power of God would be a descendant of David. But Jesus says that David calls this king who God appoints to sit at his right hand, Lord. In other words, David, Jesus points to Psalm 110 to demonstrate that David who wrote Psalm 10, writing in the spirit by the way, which is Jesus' way of saying that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote, yields his own power and importance to one greater than himself. That Yahweh has given power to another one who David defers to, pays deference to, as his Lord. And in the middle of this, verse four, it does something completely incongruous. It says that this powerful king is also a sympathetic priest. Secondly, the king as a sympathetic priest. Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The reason why this is sort of bizarre for an ancient Israelite to hear, even an Israelite in the first century to hear, is because in the ancient Jewish religious system, kings aren't priests and priests aren't kings. Those are two separate offices because of the law of Moses. And there's this appeal to this mysterious character named Melchizedek. Now, the name is 
comes from, it's a compound of two Hebrew words, Melki for king and Tzedek, which is righteousness. And so the way you pronounce it is not Melchizedek, as if he's chiseling decks. It's Melki Tzedek, Melki Tzedek. And he's only mentioned two places in the Old Testament, in Genesis 14 and in Psalm 110. And in Genesis 14, Abraham, everybody if you know who Abraham is, Abraham wins the battle of the four kings. Now in the ancient world, a king could have had a great empire or he could have just been like a mayor of a small village with about 300 people, kind of like a tribal chieftain. And so the word king was thrown around loosely in those days. And Abraham in the plains around Lot, uh, where his, his, his uh, nephew Lot lived, the plains around Sodom and Gomorrah, he gets into a conflict with these other four kings and a man named Chedorlaomer, and he wins. And a man comes to him who is said to be the king of Salem. Now we say Salem, but it's really Salem, which means peace. And this is likely later a place which would become Jerusalem. It's not for sure, but likely. And this Melchizedek is a king. He's the king of Salem. And he's also, it says, priest of God most high. And as great as Abraham is, he pays honor to this Melchizedek, who's greater than himself. This king who God places at his right hand is also a priest. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that priests had a different function than a king. They offered sacrifices for people's sins. Now, why is this important? It's important because kings come from the line of Judah and the priests come from the line of Aaron and Zadok, right? Priests are Levites. Kings are from the tribe of Judah. But Psalm 110 envisions a person who God, whom God enthrones who is both king and a priest. You see? This is a different kind of ruler. This is a different kind of king. This is a different kind of person. Because he holds together in his very person the two offices of king and priest together, which was sort of never done in ancient Israel. He's both a king and a priest. And I mentioned a minute ago that the purpose is to show that long before Moses and Aaron and the Levites, there was a king who was also a priest who preceded the Levitical priesthood. Now the reason this is important because he's an archetype. He's a real person, but he's also an archetype for the ultimate priest king. Now, it's the book of Hebrews that really unpacks the totality of what's going on here. Hebrews 7 says that the Messiah became a priest in the likeness of Melchizedek, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, which makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He holds his priesthood permanently 
Because he continues forever, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There are strands that go all throughout the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. Some are popular, some we know about. Israel, covenant, mediator, This is one of them. This is a strand that goes all throughout Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and it is this unique uh, uh, personage that is fulfilled only in the person and work of Jesus Christ who brings these two offices together. Kings have power, they rule, they reign, they conquer enemies, they destroy enemies, they protect those that belong to them but they are not seen as fulfilling the priestly role because what does a priest do? And here's where where the dissonance is for us today, okay? I've given you a lot of information and I hope I haven't been sending you to the land of Nod so far, all right? But the reason this is important is because we're trying to get at the question of who is Christ? Who do we say that Christ is? He's a king, he conquers, he rules and reigns in our hearts, he's conquered our rebellious, sinful hearts and brought us into subjection to his great power, but we typically don't think of a king as one who is also incredibly caring and sympathetic to the people, that's what a priest does. In fact, we even describe pastors in these sort of roles whether a a pastor is more kingly, or a pastor is more priestly, or a pastor is more prophetic. If a pastor is priestly, we say he has a great skill in congregational care, because the priest goes on behalf of the people to God and makes sacrifice for their sins. And I know that those two words, king and priest, just don't have a lot of Wait for us today, especially as Americans, because we don't think much about kings or priests. I mean, none of us are thinking about the next king. It's just not on our radar. It's just not something we think about. Nor are we thinking about priests. We're not thinking, oh, ooh, I hope my priest has been living holy when he goes into the holy of holies and makes sacrifice for my sin and atonement. We just don't think along those lines which is one of the reasons why half of my sermon has bored you to death. Because these are, just, these are just ideas that just have no resonance to life in the Western world in the 21st century. But Jesus, God thinks that these two offices are really important. And what God wants us to say, no, here in the 21st century is, look backward a few thousand years, I just want you to know that these are important offices and important roles. And when we think about Jesus, maybe you're bored with Jesus, maybe you're bored in your faith, maybe it's hard for you to have sort of an exciting vision of the glory of God in the Savior that you worship. But if I can sort of reignite your faith by getting you to think about what it means that Jesus is a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a king of righteousness, and also a priest who goes before God, like it says in Hebrews, 
on our behalf and lives constantly right now to make intercession for us, to offer the blood of his own sacrifice before the throne of heaven and God, that is reason to rejoice. Hallelujah. That the God we serve gave us a mediator who was himself God. A king who reigns and conquers every enemy and every enemy will be conquered. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. He will shatter kings on the day of his enthronement. He will subdue nations. Part of him conquering his enemies is bringing us into the fold because we were enemies. We resisted his power, but the way he did that is by making atonement through his own blood and bringing us near to God, through the blood of his covenant. Hallelujah. All that is necessary for our redemption, all that is necessary for our forgiveness, our salvation, our rescue from the power of Satan, our deliverance from the guilt and power of sin, Our eternal security in the presence of God is provided for and made by the priestly king, Jesus Christ. Will you fall down and worship him? Will you bow before him? Will you enlist in his army? Will you spread his message? Jesus does reign, but he reigns in power and sacrificial love. In deeds of mercy and love, he conquered the devil and his enemies for our sake. I leave you with the lyrics of the hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you now, O God, for an understanding of the office of king and priest, which has very little relevance in the lives of 21st century people in the Western world, but Lord, for a moment, help us catch a glimpse, the, the, the kind of glimpse and vision that ancient Israelites would have had as they appreciated the declaration of Psalm 110, that the king who sits at your right hand is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who had no beginning and no end, who preceded the Levitical priesthood, who now reigns and sits in power and makes intercession for us as a priest in the holy place in heaven that we might be forgiven, brought near, and adopted into the family of God to the praise and glory of your holy name. We thank you, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.